Welcome back to Beyond the Uniform. I'm Justin Asiri, and my goal is to help members of the military community thrive in their post-service career and life. Today is episode number 449, Mastering Sales with Tyler Johnston. In a GE, I was a, I was a project manager, so I actually kind of stepped a little bit away from sales, and I was on the, on the execution side, where after a deal was closed, it was handed off to me. And I always joked that I was basically a punching bag for customers. You know, I managed the, uh, I managed the ConocoPhillips account up in uh, the North Slope of Alaska. And right when I took it over, I got a call from the plant manager and he dropped like 40 F-bombs on me in probably the course of like five minutes. It was, it was the, it was like a better uh, chew out session than I had ever gotten in the Marine Corps, right? And I'm like, okay. So a lot of times the sales guys would structure deals that were, you know, unrealistic and not, not achievable just to kick them over the fence and get them signed. And then there's somebody in execution that has to deal with all of that. Well, today's episode originally aired in October of 2019. I've had Tyler on the show multiple times and even had him host a webinar for us. Um, since this episode aired, I cannot tell you how many times I've had a conversation with every conceivable friend that I have who talks about how important sales is. That's true for entrepreneurs, it's true for CEOs and general managers, it's true for pretty much every role that I've spoken with. And Tyler is exceptional at this. Um, he is um, a master of sales in his career. He has used a variety of both different experiences and functional roles for the sales capacity, most of which is in the industry energy. But what I appreciate about his story is hearing about how throughout his career, he has picked up different tools, tricks, skills that over time have allowed him to really have a mastery of this field of sales. I also appreciate his ability to communicate extremely effectively why veterans are well suited to sales, why this may be an appealing career path, even if you think it's the least likely career path that you would want to pursue. We talk about an executive MBA, why he chose to pursue it, why it's pretty unique for most guests on the show and more. Um, and just from my own perspective, you know, I feel like as a uh, CEO, as an entrepreneur, there is no shortage of sales throughout my day. Obviously, I'm selling to customers. I'm selling to employees to join. I'm selling to investors to invest. I'm selling in partners to partner. I just feel like it's a nonstop skill that I'm using throughout my career. I'm really grateful for what I've learned, and I have so much more to learn, and that's why I enjoyed talking to Tyler. As always, at beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find show notes with links to everything we discuss, as well as 448 other episodes just like this one. So with that, let's dive into my conversation with Tyler. Well, joining me today in Houston, Texas, my guest is Tyler Johnston. Tyler, welcome to Beyond the Uniform. Hi, Justin. Thanks for having me. Wanted to thank John Allen from episode 155 for referring us to Tyler. Uh, for listeners, Tyler is a sales director at a company called Black & Beach's Corporate Strategic Accounts Team. Uh, in that capacity, he's responsible for managing global relationships in the technology sector and helping his clients build critical infrastructure solutions that consolidate the EPC's power, water, telecom, and consulting offerings. He started out at the Naval Academy, served as an infantry officer in the U.S. Marine Corps for five years, and has held positions at NRG Energy, General Electric, and Shift.org. He's also earned his MBA at Columbia Business School. Um, so Tyler, maybe to kick things off, what's, what's not in that bio that you want to make sure listeners know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my, my younger brother was also in the Marine Corps. His name was Troy Johnston. He enlisted in 2008 while I was going through infantry officer course. And we got to Camp Pendleton right around the same time. So got to, uh, got to basically serve uh, throughout the same time that he was there. And I really think that he gave me a, a really interesting perspective on being an officer. I almost had a second group of enlisted friends from 1st Reconnaissance Battalion throughout the time I served and really got an inside perspective on the impact that officers had on the life of enlisted folks. And, and I think he made me a lot better. Um, he served as a scout sniper in 1st Recon for eight years, and he passed away uh, about 18 months ago in a, in a car accident. 
prior to him passing away, he was a contractor in Afghanistan and he had done that for about a year and did three deployments. So I try to bring him up as often as I can. And I have a uh, Dr. Seuss tribute to him on my arm. So, uh, and I think it's just important for families who've, who've, uh, who've, you know, brothers and sisters who've lost their brothers and sisters to understand that it's a, there's a, a network of folks out there like, like you and, uh, and there's a lot of support from from people who've experienced what you have. Mm. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate your sharing that. I'm curious. Um, I mean, I can't even, my, my brother was a year ahead of me at the Naval Academy. I can't even comprehend what that would be like to lose him. And I'm just wondering for listeners who have lost someone in the service or in their family, like if you have any advice on grieving or on, on moving through that grief. Yeah, I would say talk about them as as often as you can. You know, anytime I meet uh, folks who've who've lost uh, siblings, especially siblings who were serving, um, I, I tell them to the only you know the only way we keep them alive is by continuing to talk about them and echo their name. The uh, Travis Mannion Foundation has been really supportive of my family and I through this through this uh, experience, and I would say that there is a network of of other advocates out there and, and folks to talk to. And ultimately, given that he was a sniper and, and a reconnaissance guy, kind of look at it like I have some Overwatch uh, in you know any situation that I face. So I think that that helps me get through it as well as talking about him. And then um, you know find reasons to bring him up. My uh, I, I forced my mom to get his name tattooed on her forearm as well, which was her first tattoo, and uh, it causes her to talk about him every day. So I think that that's uh, I think that that's a pretty solid way to keep him alive. That's powerful. I love that. I love that uh, thought of like the tattoo is like this this kind of forcing function to have people ask about it. What, what was the significance of Dr. Seuss? Uh, so my brother and I grew up with, as, as big Dr. Seuss fans, there's multiple stories that, that were important to both of us. Uh, when he joined the Marine Corps, I gave him, oh, the places you'll go with, uh, with a, a passage written to him about how well he was going to do. And I found that in his nightstand after we were cleaning his stuff out. But the one on my arm is called I Had Trouble Getting to Sala Salu, which was another story that we liked. And my brother was a pretty big tattoo aficionado. He had a I used to tell him he looked like the inside of a bathroom stall at 29 Palms, but he had a, he had American on his chest. He had George Washington on one leg and Chewbacca on another leg. So um, it was kind of part of his personality and tried to keep him alive in that regard. That's awesome. I appreciate that. Um, well, well, maybe to, um, maybe to start, because, you know, there's so many different ways to go with your career, but let's maybe start fast forwarding to right now, if you bumped into a, another Marine on the streets of Houston and they said, you know, Tyler, what do you do for a living? How do you, how do you answer that these days? Uh, I typically would say something to the effect of I get to, I get to hang out with people and entertain them for a living. And then I get to go into my internal organization and grab people that are smarter than me and pull them into conversations when it makes sense. Um, so when you thought, if you had told me that that was a job that I could get paid for when I was in the Marine Corps, I, I wouldn't have believed you, but it, it absolutely is. So that's I'm I'm uh, I'm super conscious right now about profanity because I have to mark on iTunes if I cuss and and then it makes the show explicit. But I want to say fan effing tastic. That's such an awesome description because um, I'm going into this. I think a lot of what we're going to talk about is sales, and I hope listeners observe how you just explain that is not what I think of for sales. Like you're talking about entertaining people, you're talking about captivating them and getting their attention, which might be a surprise to many listeners who have preconceived notions about what sales is. Yeah, absolutely. And I had those same preconceived notions when I was getting out, you know, I was a, uh, I was ultimately a history major from the Naval Academy and an infantry officer. So I looked at the, the career opportunities that were available, available to me and I, I kind of saw them as limited. And luckily I had some really solid mentors that, that helped me understand really how to translate the skills that I had developed in the Marine Corps into sales. And I stopped thinking about sales as, you know, a used car salesman in a plaid jacket, forcing people to buy something they didn't want. And much more as a consultant that ultimately identifies a, a problem to a client's solution and then works with that client to carry the, that solution through their organization, ultimately to approval. I love it. And, and for listeners, we're, we're going to get to rewinding the clock and kind of how Tyler got here. But um, I really appreciated in the emails we were trading, you had a really cool breakdown of how you view sales through the lens of your Marine Corps experience. And I'm curious if you could share a little bit more with listeners about uh, 
that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I guess was kind of starting at the beginning. Um, when I was getting out, I, I most of my time in the Marine Corps had been spent as a combat advisor. So in Iraq, I had advised the Iraqi police and I had built some uh, joint Iraqi army, Iraqi police training programs that were successful. And then when I uh, got back from that deployment, our battalion, 2nd Battalion, 1st Marines, pulled all the weapons platoon commanders into advisor roles, and we were embedded advisors organic to the battalion. So we got to pick some of our own guys from our weapons platoon and really form like almost, you know, an SF style advisory team within the battalion. And I lived with the Afghan army for seven months. I had four Afghan bases, two of them with Marines on them and 20 Marines spread out that were ultimately advising key leaders throughout uh, our, our companies, our Afghan companies organization. And um, you know, when I was getting out, I explained that to one of my mentors and he said, that's enterprise sales. That's embedding in an organization, identifying key influencers, building rapport, and ultimately advancing an agenda through that organization that, that your boss wants you to advance. And, and what it really is, is, is developing a coach who you can basically put up on the stage and put their name in lights so that in the background, you're orchestrating a lot of what's going on, but at the end of the day, they're the ones that are going to get credit for it. And they're the ones that are going to you know, ultimately be successful with their mission. That's great. And so let's, let's kind of maybe continue that vein. Let's rewind the clock. Um, how did you approach the decision to leave the Marines and, and what was that first job search like? Yeah. So as I was getting out, you know, I, I gotten that advice from a mentor that, that enterprise sales was, was pretty similar to advising. Um, and then, you know, as I, as I went through that career, there's other parallels, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, but to me, I, I looked at the industries that I could potentially work in. And I, I, my wife and I always say that we believe that the two most important industries are healthcare and energy in terms of, you know, wicked problems of the future. And she works in healthcare. I work in energy. Um, so that's kind of why I gravitated toward it. And I went through uh, Orion, you know, one of the JO headhunters, and found a, a really good opportunity with Siemens Energy, which was the, the former Westinghouse business that Siemens had acquired. But they sold gas turbines, generators, wind turbines, and really large multi-million dollar equipment to generate power. And the, the sales and lead cycle um, on these deals are long. You know, it's like two years in order to, to execute a deal sometimes. So got to rotate through different parts of the business at Siemens and really learn from a lot of really accomplished and, and professional older sales uh, men and women and, and spend a lot of time, you know, out in the field with them, riding in cars, getting windshield time and understanding how these accounts could be managed. And as I went through that program, I, I really started to see a lot of parallels between what I'd done in the Marine Corps and, and how I could build a successful career in sales. That's great. I, you know, it strikes me and we'll, we'll delve more into your history, but um, correct me if I'm wrong, it kind of strikes me that you put some stakes in the ground. And I love that it was values based in that conversation with your wife. Like these are values we have around healthcare, around energy, about solving problems that are going to affect people. It seems like that extends your mission from the military. It gives you purpose. But I love that you kind of put the stake in the ground around energy as an industry. And then it seems like you kind of put a stake in the ground around sales as the functional role where you were going to gain expertise. And I'm just kind of projecting here, but I'm jealous of, um, how it seems like you've built a career around cultivating that industry for the most part, that industry and that skill set. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was, I, I really wanted to start out by going to a large name in the space in the, in the power generation space. And there's only three or four of them out there in the world, Siemens, General Electric, a couple others. So I wanted, you know, I, and I think that that was valuable in my transition because a big, large organization created a lot of structure that was similar to the military. And it made it like, had I gone to a startup right out of the military, it probably would have kind of made my head spin, you know? So I needed that, that longer transition period in order to understand kind of the way that, uh, the way that, that these deals are structured and the way that these relationships are managed. But as I spent more time at, at Siemens and, and you know, ultimately GE and then NRG, I've, I've really seen this trend toward 
distributed energy solutions growing in the market. So, you know, if you think about power generation, you know, back to the beginning, it's always been these large centralized power plants with transmission lines that push power out into the communities. And as technology has increased with, with solar and with wind, you're starting to see a, uh, a distribution of the energy assets and a, a redefining of the grid. So, um, and that, that conversation is being driven mainly by large commercial and industrial users who spend a lot of money on power and, and uh, have a lot of weight to throw around in these markets. So for me, I, I identified early on that being able to manage relationships and more importantly, navigate these large CNI clients would be a you know, really valuable school, skill to cultivate as I, as I developed a sales career. And what's, what's CNI? Uh, commercial and industrial, uh, so just large energy users that are commercial clients. So you know, there's a there's different sectors that CNI clients can fall into, like technology, which would be the large, you know, big five technology companies that have a lot of data centers and and a, and a lot of energy consumption. And there's also you know, industrial clients that have some type of electricity heavy process that they're running. That's great. And, and um, I, I have a couple other questions, but could you kind of, you know, continue from Siemens and um, talk about the experience you had in, in the energy space. And, and one of the things I, I'm trying to drive at here that I thought was interesting about your story, and, and you, you shared this with us, you know, you, you've had experience with equipment manufacturers, with power providers, and with um, project developers. You know, it's, I, I don't know a ton about the space, but it seems like these are important components of the industry. So I'd love for you to kind of zoom in a little bit for listeners and share with them kind of the, the career arc leading to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. So, so at Siemens, you know, it was a it was a great introduction into enterprise sales. They had a, a a division called Power System Sales that sold all of the equipment that Siemens manufactured, services and new units. So I was able to do various rotations in both marketing and and technical sales, which are the 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 people that are putting together proposals and pricing and negotiating commercial terms, and then also time with folks out in the field that were actually you know managing these these. Uh, these client relationships at the at the initial point of entry and throughout all of that I really got an appreciation for you know the equipment that generates power I think that's a big component of it but it's not the entire value chain there's there's other pieces to that so I had done uh, four rotations at Siemens and and at the end that that, that program was out of Orlando but I had rotated out to Houston uh, in one of their businesses. And my wife got into grad school and we really wanted to settle somewhere. We'd moved a handful of times throughout my time in the Marine Corps. So we decided to just put down roots in Houston and, and I went to General Electric and was able to get a role there after I had done the rotational program at Siemens. Um, and at GE, I was, a, I was a project manager. So I actually kind of stepped a little bit away from sales and I was on the, on the execution side where after a deal was closed, it was handed off to me. And I always joked that I was basically a punching bag for customers. You know, I managed the uh, I managed the ConocoPhillips account up in uh, the North Slope of Alaska. And right when I took it over, I got a call from the plant manager, and he dropped like forty f bombs on me in probably the course of like five minutes. It was, it was the it was like a better uh, chew out session than I had ever gotten in the Marine Corps, right? And I'm like, okay. So a lot of times the sales guys would structure deals that were you know unrealistic and not not achievable just to kick them over the fence and get them signed. And then there's somebody in execution that has to deal with all of that. So for two years at GE, I managed uh, gas turbine overhauls and repairs in both the Gulf Coast of the United States and up in Alaska. So there's GE equipment on these sites that was being used in a, in a power generation capacity at an oil and gas site or running a compressor to either move fluid or enhance oil recovery or you know whatever application. And my job was to basically plan for the, the maintenance of these gas turbines. A gas turbine is, is much like a, a, a pit stop in NASCAR in terms of, you know, you have these, these scheduled outages that you bring it down for uh, in, order to, in order to do routine maintenance. And then there's also forced outages where something breaks, this machine isn't running, the company's losing millions of dollars a day, and it's on the service provider to get it back up and running. So I learned a lot about just structuring projects, managing client relationships on the execution side, and really being in some in some you know in a foxhole with some of my clients and helping them achieve their goals and, and built some great relationships. The other aspect of that role, we had uh, GE Oil and Gas's initial foray into the oil and gas space was through the acquisition of a 
company called Nuevo Pinone in Florence, Italy. So our headquarters was in Florence and a ton of our engineering resources and support were in Florence. And early on in my time at GE, we had uh, a lot of issues with things not moving effectively through Florence or communications disconnects between clients in the Gulf Coast and, and engineers in Italy. So early on, I, I kind of saw this as an opportunity that was very similar to what I did as an advisor. And I convinced my first boss to give me budget to go over there for a couple of weeks and just meet all these people. And I spent a ton of time hanging out with Italian engineers, long lunches, going out at night, really building relationships to where when I came back to the shop, I was able to make projects move very quickly by calling someone's cell phone. Um, and it worked so well that my boss agreed to send me there like essentially quarterly for the rest of the time I was at GE. So got to spend a lot of time in Florence, but, you know, really kind of managing relationships internally with the organization and, and externally with our clients. So I felt like that was really kind of the first place where I saw that, that it's, it's very similar to being an advisor. And I would say to anyone, you know, that has any, combat advisory experience like the the parallels to sales are, are scary and I'm sure there's more that we'll talk about um, but I really kind of got an appreciation for the execution side of the value chain there at GE um, while I was at GE I also did well, let me just pause you there because there's too much good stuff here we got to unpack this um, I love I love first of all you're talking about this tension which you know I've done a lot of sales and startups and I and I've running a company, you've also done the customer support. And the way that I've experienced it is this tension between salespeople who are doing what they're supposed to do, which is bringing in revenue, doing whatever it takes to keep the lights on and generate money, and then customer support where they're really trying to keep customers happy. And very often, I don't think this is unique for you, very often they're having to clean up the mess of a salesperson who overpromised or maybe did whatever it took to close the deal because that's how they're incentivized. And mm -hmm. so I was wondering, um, because you go back into sales eventually, how did that experience at GE change how you show up as a salesperson or, or did it? Yeah, I mean, I think what it really taught me to do is, is build internal resources and assets in the organization. And include and think about the life cycle of a deal and then include all of those potential stakeholders, not only up to deal signature, but, you know, more importantly to deal execution. So, you know, another, another parallel. And, and I think, I think the, the best lesson I took from the Marine Corps is this concept of what I call a social chameleon. So a, a young infantry officer has the ability to, you know, fill sandbags with his Marines and, and uh, you know, be in the dirt with them. And then, you know, potentially two hours later, be briefing a, a flag officer on uh, ultimately using your resources and assets to accomplish a mission, right? So you have to be able to transition very quickly between these two different worlds, and you've got to be able to build rapport in both. And I think working in a manufacturing facility at GE really solidified that for me. So, you know, I was not I was not in charge of anyone in the manufacturing facility. I was essentially an individual contributor that owned projects and financials on these projects. But I had to work with these folks within the facility. And very early on, I had a, a forced outage that happened at Exxon where we had like 10 days to turn a rotor and get it back to them. And they were losing like a million dollars a day in this process that the, the turbine was down. And I went in on a Saturday at like eight o'clock in the morning and brought in donuts and went and just hung out with the guys in the rotor cell while they were, while they were working on my turbine. And then after that, and it was, it was not a huge commitment of my time and not nearly as hard as some of the things I had to do in the Marine Corps. But after that experience, I started to get priority of fires on all of these different assets within the organization because I'm ultimately competing against a bunch of other folks that are, you know, doing the same thing as me. And if I've got rapport built with all of these key pieces of the internal organization, then I'm going to be able to get the best talent to work on my project. And I'm ultimately going to be able to deliver the best solution to my clients. So I think that's really what working on the execution side taught me. Um, a, being a project manager is, is very similar to like kind of some of the things we do in the military. So it's a great transition role, but more it gives you an appreciation for like the, you know, executing a realistic project. And I think it makes you a far superior salesperson because it forces you to go out in your organization and build rapport with the, you know, technical resources that are actually going to make whatever you're trying to sell to your client a reality.
That's great. And, and just two things I'll call out for your listeners that I'm sure is abundantly clear, but I just want to point it out anyways. I, I love, it seems like this thread throughout your story in both military and outside is the importance of relationship, of, of cultivating those quality relationships and, and um, seeing in different ways already how that paid off in terms of your performance. Um, and I think that will appeal to listeners because I think most of us in the military prize ourselves on the ability to work with a diverse group of people and kind of forge relationships quickly. Um, I also love, it sounds like you took a lot of initiative after you'd been at GE, you've kind of proved yourself. You went to your boss with this idea of traveling and having a budget and going over to Italy and, and forging these relationships. And I love that. Um, yeah, I just love that example of kind of taking a risk um, showing some ownership, throwing out something new. And it seems like that also paid off in terms of the company and, and for yourself of establishing relationships that would make everything incrementally easier. Um, and, and I just wanted, before we kind of unpause and continue the story from there, um, could you give listeners a sense of um, lifestyle at Siemens and GE in terms of kind of like hours per week, travel and just any other the the qualitative tidbits to give them a sense of what it would be like to work at one of those organizations and in, in the capacity that you worked yeah i i'd say like the project management role is you know more of a typical nine to five job because you're you know working on the schedule of the internal organization but the when you get into a business development or sales role a lot of that happens on the nights and weekends so it's a very like non-traditional working schedule you know you may have a couple days where you're in the office and you're just kind of doing all your administrative tasks and laying out your your plan for the next couple of weeks but but then you're in multiple cities on airplanes and 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 scheduling you know meetings with your clients i truly believe that the most effective sales guys that i've been humbled enough to get to learn from are folks who are in front of their clients all the time. So I, when I was at NRG, I traveled at least probably three weeks a month. You know, I spent a lot of time in, in airplanes and, I, and I've been doing that since I've been at Black & Beach because there's, there's still no, regardless of how technology enabled our, our society becomes, there's still no substitute for just going and spending time with another human being, whether it's for dinner or to go entertain them at an event or even just, you know, I've flown to cities to literally grab a coffee. Um, for one day and then come back. But that has ultimately made uh, made a difference on some of these deals. So for anyone thinking about going into sales, like, you know, it's it's not like the, you know, McKinsey or investment banking lifestyle where you're working like 80 or 100 hour weeks and you're it's brutal travel when you're at a client site for four days, but you're probably going to be traveling at least every week or every other week, depending on, you know, the size of the organization, your budget, and, and ultimately what you're trying to accomplish. You know, on the on the other side, I would say at a startup, it's probably a little different because budget is more of a constraint uh, early on while you're trying to improve a concept and raise money. So it really depends on the size of the organization you're going to, but I, I truly believe there's no substitute for FaceTime with, with your clients and the organizations you're selling to. That's fantastic. I love that. And um, are you are you an extrovert? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I mean, my wife is a, my wife's an introvert and I'm an extrovert, extrovert. So I think we balance each other really well. She, she pulls me back in and, and, and forces me to stay in some nights and, and, uh, you know, actually sit with my own thoughts and, and I'm, I'm the opposite. I'm constantly going and I've always got to be out meeting with someone or talking to someone. So yes. And I hope for listeners, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure there are very successful salespeople who are, I, I, I am definitely an introvert. I'm sure there's very successful introverts in sales too. So I'm not trying to make a distinction that um, that should play a role, but I think it's worth, you know, if you're listening to Tyler's description of jet setting and having an expense account and going and grab, like literally flying to a city to grab coffee and forge a relationship, if that energizes you, that's that's something to investigate because this you know this talk about a career that's going to feed you and nurture you in terms of being able to travel and go out and and spend time having lunch with people and things like that. I, I prefer to like grab lunch and read quietly in a corner. And so like that might be an indication that this type of sales at least might not be appealing to you. But I, I love um, I love the granularity you're providing for listeners because. It is one view of sales, but I think a great view of, of, of Tyler's experience with sales and giving listeners a sense of that, if that would be appealing to them. Um, yeah. yeah. 
and I would add there too. I mean, there's in my experience of what I've seen, there's two really effective type of sellers, and neither one of them is is better than the other. And, and some guys who are the unicorn are are able to kind of combine these two areas, and it's something I strive for, but you know, fall short of often. The first type of seller that's really good is someone who's extremely detail, process organized and oriented. And these these people have the ability to keep track of every interaction down to the T that happens with the client. They're usually extremely disciplined. They sleep nine or 10 hours a night and they're just, you know, they're like machines. And there's another side, which I probably lean more toward who are just really good with relationships. You can drop them into any client's situation with an objective and they're able to build rapport and ultimately advance to the next stage. And, and, and those folks typically need a little bit more administrative support or, you know, it's hard to pull out of that and deep dive and do the, the analytical work that you have to do in order to structure your strategy and your approach. So that's definitely an area that I've constantly been working to develop. But to say that, you know, only extroverts do well in sales, I, I don't think is the case. I think that there is absolutely a place for people who are, you know, extremely process detail oriented, like, I don't know, a nuclear submariner, for instance, would be an example, right? Who's someone who is 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 so in, in is so ingrained in a uh, understands a process so well that they can ultimately adapt it, you know, to be successful in sales. I think there's a lot of value there as well. Awesome. So I, I love it. I'll, I'll get out of your way. I want you to be able to continue the story. But uh, yes, yeah, so you're at GE. Where where does the story go from there? Yeah. So, you know, when I was at GE, like that, that project management lifestyle is rough, you know, it's, it's a lot of like, uh, it's a lot of fighting a lot of fires and it, and it wears you down, but it was, it was absolutely essential to, for my growth. So I, I realized early on at GE that, you know, most of the senior leadership at the company had some type, type of background in finance. There was 200 officers at GE. And I think something like 70% of them had actually come up through this uh, program that they have called Corporate Audit Staff, which is an internal consultant that, that is, it serves essentially as a firewall to the outside for the rest of the company. And I, I realized that I was, it was as if I was doing a job that required me to speak Spanish and I didn't really speak Spanish well, you know, in terms of finances. That's how I thought about financial acumen. So I wanted to do an MBA. And I, I had a lot of friends and mentors, including some of your classmates here in Houston, who had helped me on this MBA path. And I talked to tons of veterans about it and, and got a ton of support from the community. And ultimately, I said, you know, I want to go to the best school that I can get into. And I want to leave Texas to do my MBA because I don't want to be around a bunch of operations guys at oil and gas companies because I feel like there's, there's really no diversity of thought there. So I wanted to go to a place where... I was challenged where I was uncomfortable and where no one looked or thought or talked like me. So I was fortunate enough to get into Columbia in their executive program and even more fortunate to get GE to allow me to, to pursue this. And so I flew every other Friday or every other Thursday for two years. So it was like 52 trips in total to New York. Um, crashed on my, my roommate from undergrad's couch who was in the full-time program. He was a fellow Navy nuke. And uh, so while he was going through the full-time program, I had a cot in his living room that I slept on and you know, pursued the executive program. And I would say that, you know, the first couple of months there, I was way over my skis. It was like, you know, I, it, I always say, if you're the smartest person in the room, then you need to go find another room. And I was definitely not the smartest person in the room. And I was just like, what did I get myself into? But ultimately, I built some relationships at Columbia that are even closer than some of the ones I have from the Marine Corps. And I have a ton of really good friends in New York. And I think that that, that MBA really gave me the ability to think about to think about problems from a financial standpoint and develop financial acumen. And I had a strategy teacher at Columbia who used to always say, or he told us, you know, if you take one thing from my class, I want it to be this. From the time you wake up in the morning and begin to interact with the outside world, to the time you go to bed, something's being sold to you. And that's okay, but the faster that you can dissect the value chain and understand where all of the, you know, understand where all of the benefits are in this sales process, the faster you can, or, you know, the better business decisions you'll be able to make, and ultimately the better you'll do in, you know, whatever you, whatever you pursue. And I firmly believe that that was like probably the best thing I took away from Columbia is not only did it give me the credibility to, to speak this financial language I needed, but it also helped me very quickly analyze situations, break down the economic model, see where all the value drivers are, and ultimately identify opportunities for arbitrage. I, I Just two things I'll call out quickly for listeners. So 
you're a pretty big contrast to my experience. Navy, I went Navy directly to business school. You had industry experience and then got your executive MBA. Um, what I'm appreciating it is the clarity you're bringing to the decision where you realized with very specific accuracy, like I need to know better finance to do, to, to excel at my job. I need diversity of opinions. I'm around a bunch of operational people. I need to get out of that. So I, um, I hope listeners appreciate the crispness of your thinking of um, what you need versus, you know, for me, it was literally like, hey, I, I enjoy managing people in the Navy. If I want to do that in the business world, I should go to business school. So um, I think that there is a certain amount of clarity that comes from obtaining knowledge, which you were able to do by getting your feet wet in a couple of different companies and understanding what you enjoyed and where you needed support. And then I also just want to applaud you on your willingness to get out of your comfort zone. I know we talk about that a lot on the show, but the, the comfortable thing, in my opinion, would have been to stay in Houston, to be around these people, to kind of be in that environment. And I love that it seems like you were seeking a diversity of opinion, a diversity of background to be uncomfortable. And I imagine a lot of good things came in terms of growth from being out of your comfort zone for those two years. And by, you know, just while traveling that regularly on top of a job is, is pretty, uh, that would make me uncomfortable about it. But I imagine it made you grow an exceptional amount in those two years. Yeah, yeah. So my roommate at in in Columbia or at in New York actually went investment banking, and he worked in J.P. Morgan's M&A group, um, in their energy banking group. And so I was with him throughout his summer, where he'd come in at two or three in the morning from getting off of work, and they were going easy on the uh, the interns during the summer. Um, so it's, it was usually a lot later once he became an associate. But I got really interested in eye banking and even thought about doing it for a little while, and I. Uh, I connected with a bunch of veterans in Houston and all the different banks and did just initial coffee chats at, at mo most of the bulge bracket banks, which I'm sure you're familiar with kind of how that process worked, but it really forced me to refine my story, get laser focused on being able to explain why I thought that I would do well in this world. And, you know, I probably had 20 or 30 of these coffee chats, which forced me way out of my comfort zone. And by the end of them, I, I essentially had a, a deep dive, you know, soul search with myself and said, there's no way that you're going to be successful being in front of Excel for 14 hours a day. So chose not to pursue it. But, you know, through that, through that exercise, I built a lot of close friendships at some of these banks. And these are guys that their fellow vets that we're talking to on a daily basis about multiple deals that we're working. So I think, you know, going through the MBA program and going through either the consulting interview route or the banking interview route, it's, it's extremely painful from what I witnessed and the little bit of it I did, but I think it really kind of forces you to think more holistically about an industry that you're interested in. And it helps you build a network of fellow vets. You know, there's, there's a, there's a, very clear veteran mafia at all of these different places. And there's a ton of great guys out there that are willing to spend time helping you think through your career uh, growth. And I think that that's probably one of the, the largest benefits of, of serving that I've seen. That's awesome. So um, you're uh, take us through the story then. So you're, you're, yeah. Where do you go from there? Yeah. So after I finished my MBA, you know, I, I had really decided that I wanted to get closer to the front end of deals. Um, so, uh, you know, scrap the ideas of, of either doing banking or consulting. No, no offense to anyone that did those. I think they're extremely valuable, but realized that that wasn't where my, my strong suit slide. So I actually was able to, to get a job at NRG Energy during a really interesting time in the company. Um, started there in, in 2016, the last couple months of the MBA program. And, uh, and they were going through a really big uh, internal transformation. They had, they had uh, a new CEO and they had some activist investors that had gotten involved with the company. So there was a lot of you know, volatility and change going on there. And I worked in a group there called Business Solutions, which was, uh, you know, NRG is a, is a power provider. They sell electricity to end users, but they also develop power generation assets. So they have large conventional uh, power plants that, that generate power and allow them to play in the wholesale markets. But Business Solutions was focused you know, on this concept of distributed energy, whether that was on-site solar, or, or offsite renewables and, um, and then other technologies on a site that would add, add additional value to their offering as, as a commodity supplier. So 
was extremely fortunate to start in business solutions because this group is, which is a, a sub-tier business of NRG reports to the CEO is led by a, a veteran named Rob Godet, who was a, who was an army veteran who served in Kosovo and him and I uh, developed a relationship pretty early on and he was a phenomenal mentor to me throughout my time at NRG and, and even up to today in terms of really helping me understand how, how you operate in this space. And, and from him and, and um, others on his staff, including my direct supervisor, Linda Clemens, I learned a ton about how you conduct yourself uh, you know, in a C-suite and how you interact with senior level clients at Fortune 500 companies. So it was, it was extremely brutal a couple of years. They, they did this thing called Money Monday where every Monday we would have to stand up and go through every one of our deals and essentially convince our leadership that this was a, a valid pursuit and that, that we should be spending time on this and then you know, ultimately advancing deals to closure. So worked at NRG for two years, developing various uh, renewable projects as well as, as some commodity deals. And uh, it was, it was you know, probably the, the most valuable experience to, to that point of my career. And I don't think that I would have been nearly as effective had I not had the MBA and had not spent time at you know, Siemens and, and GE really understanding like how, how to manage relationships and ultimately how to build rapport with internal assets and, and bring them to bear for the client. And I'll just call out for listeners like a concept I'm thinking about a lot lately is mastery. And that's what comes to mind when you're talking about these things is um, I think one of the advantages to your having selected the functional area of sales and then the industry of energy is it's allowed you to deepen. And I love the way that you're calling this out for listeners because we're getting this sense of, you know, every couple of years that you're at a company, you're picking up a new skill set, a new perspective, a new tool that you can apply and you're gaining insight about what might you need next to become, you know, to, to become a master of your trade, which you've, you've developed into. So I think that's, that's really awesome. And I'll let you continue the story, but I just wanted to call that out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so after I'd been at NRG a couple of years, I, I got to meet a, an entrepreneur out of Silicon Valley named Mike Slaw, who I think you know, who's uh, still one of my very close friends. And uh, Mike had a, a startup called Shift that he had uh, that he had raised some friends and family money on, and and was was going out to market to try to raise a seed round. So. I, uh, I got connected with Mike and, and started consulting for him and just doing some advisory work on um, you know, building a sales organization. So how do you structure a CRM? How do you think about hiring AEs? How do you kind of scale this, this organization? And it started out really just as a, as a consulting engagement and friendship where we spent a lot of time on the phone talking about some of these different things. And then in, in February of 18, he actually raised his seed round with Andreessen Horowitz in the lead, which was, which was really exciting. Um, and he asked me to come on board full time. So I, I left NRG with, with Rob and my leadership's blessing to go out and, and you know, see what this startup thing was all about because I really wanted to understand the way Silicon Valley operated and understand how these companies are built. And I was with Mike for a year at Shift um, and had, had an awesome experience the whole time. Got to hire a couple AEs, got to kind of really build the initial pipeline and, and get involved with some of the, uh, the product development and engineering efforts. And uh, it, was, it was a really rewarding experience and it completely kind of diversified, diversified my skills and tools. And it was, you know, the exact opposite of working at a couple hundred thousand organization like GE, like 20 people at a startup you know, still fighting similar battles, but, but kind of from a different, different position. Right. Um, and I was with Mike for a year and, you know, I was really passionate about what we were doing there. We were helping vets transition into the technology industry, but my heart really lied with energy and, and my heart was here in Houston. So Mike and I, um, you know, mutually agreed that we should, that we should find a way to transition the efforts to another sales leader and um, help them do that. And now I'm back in, in the energy industry where, I, where I've kind of, where my heart's always been. That's great. I mean, I love the thought of you um, just constantly getting information of like, okay, I have experience on a big company in the energy sector. Let me just kind of get a couple data points about what it's like to be in a small company outside of energy and just using that to inform your, your opinion, making sure that you're headed in the direction you want to. And it sounds like ultimately that led you back to the energy sector, but in, in maybe in an alternate universe, maybe there's something you would have liked more there and could have spun out into a different direction. So I think it's great that you were 
open to having a diverse experience to better inform what you want to do next. Yeah. And ultimately a lot of the conversations I'm having now go back to the Bay area. And I mean, Mike is, is probably one of the most well-connected veterans in the Bay area that I've seen and this, our friendship and our, our partnership has, has extended well beyond my, my full-time employment at shift. I'm still an advisor to the company and, and still help uh, penetrate different accounts in my space whenever I can. So uh, it's, it was really rewarding just to get to understand, you know, how a startup is built and, and ultimately how, you know, all the different components that go into that. So I'm fortunate for it. That's awesome. I know we're um, eating away at the clock here. So let me be a little, a little bit deliberate in a couple last questions. Um, one is we, we've dabbled in it, but could you kind of um, dive more into why you think veterans may be well suited to sales? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, I think there's three main, three main areas that, that really help, you know, veterans in general, but you know, more specifically from my experience, uh, folks who are either infantry officers or, or combat advisors. One is the ability to build a coach, as I, as I talked at length about, you know, when you're advising someone in, in a host nation force, you're ultimately, you can't just tell them, hey, like, if we're going to go do a raid, this is where you should put your inner cordon, this is where you should put your outer cordon, this is where we're going to approach from, because then when you execute, there's really no ownership of that whole process. So it's more of a discussion of, hey, we have to go do this thing at this objective where should we put the trucks to make sure no one gets in? Where should we put the trucks to make sure no one gets out? And when you help your counterpart build this plan, then they have ownership of it. And when it's successful and their leadership shows up, then you just point at them and say, hey, this guy did everything. You know, like, I'm just kind of hanging out here. And I've experienced that exact same thing as you drive a large, you know, multi-million dollar enterprise deal through an organization is you are not the best suited person to navigate that organization. Someone inside is. So it's important to identify someone who stands a lot to benefit from your solution being implemented, develop a very close relationship and friendship with them because you're going to have to have some hard conversations. You're going to have to, you know, get in the, get in the fire with them and then ultimately help them push that through their organization. And that is, I think, you know, one of the main things I took away from being an advisor and it's a direct parallel into sales. Um, the second is mission planning. So in the Marine Corps, we use a process called OSMIAC, which stands for Orientation, Situation, Mission, Execution, Admin, Logistics, Command, and Signal. But it's really a way to map out, you know, any objective or initiative you're pursuing as an infantry officer. So I started using that early on in the civilian world at the advice of some other Marine officers who had come before me. The exact same format, the exact same planning process. And when you start talking about main efforts and phase lines and coordinating instructions, like A, uh, you know, it, it's a it's a really good way to structure a sales approach, but B, it's usually well received by by civilian leadership because it 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 helps you know really kind of map out your your objectives and and you can adapt a lot of these planning tools for for what you're trying to do in the space. And then lastly, I've kind of touched on this a couple times, but it's really this concept of combined arms. As an infantry officer, you're given some type of supporting uh, some type of support in the accomplishment of your mission that might be air support that might be artillery that might be mortars and your job as a as a platoon commander is to synthesize those support resources and to the right timing and the right effect to ultimately achieve max impact on the enemy so that when you get to the objective like you know none of your guys are hurt right so i looked at sales very similarly where it says hey you know like at NRG, there was often questions that came up about rec trading, which I was in no way a subject matter expert in rec trading, but I had developed a relationship with one of our best rec traders. And every time that conversation came up, I said, hold on, let me pull this guy in. And I think most important is when one of those support assets enables a deal, singing their success story to the whole organization and making sure their leadership and everyone else knows that they were pivotal to this thing happening. And I think that's, that's really kind of the, Ties, what ties everything together from what I learned as an infantry officer and in, into sales today is it's the ability to know the inside of your organization so well and have a rapport built there. And that's, that's what I've been spending my first three months at Black and Beach doing is building internal relationships so that when you have to bring these assets to bear for your client, you can do it in a way that it ultimately achieves their objective. I kind of viewed sales before as uh, 
that connective tissue. Like I, I usually think of that as like a product manager who kind of sits between and coordinates. But I love this. Um, first of all, I love the military lens you apply to sales. I think it's exceptional. But I love this thought of like you being kind of the connector and needing to know external and internal stakeholders to make things happen. I think that's that's really incredible. Um, for listeners at beyondtheuniform.org in the show notes for this episode, um, uh, We've got uh, Tyler put together a bunch of um, resources. We don't have to, I don't want to waste time having you go through those, um, but I'll add those in the show notes. Know that normally I ask about resources, but we kind of ran short on time. Um, instead, I want to just kind of clear up the last three to five minutes. Um, I know we intended to talk about a lot of stuff and you've got so much knowledge. We kind of didn't get to get to everything. Um, I want to free up the last three to five minutes to let you take the conversation wherever you'd like, like what have we not covered that you'd like to share or what would you like to re reiterate for listeners before we wrap up? Yeah, I think I would tell every veteran that's listening to think about your, your service and your experiences in service as an advantage. Uh, you know, when you're thinking about your career search, oftentimes uh, folks kind of feel like this transition is really hard and scary. And, you know, I don't, I don't really have any directly transferable skills, especially if I'm an infantry officer slash history major, like how am I going to work in the business world? Right. And I think that, you know, based off kind of some of the things that I highlighted here, that these are absolutely an advantage that once you figure out how to apply these processes and tools to your you know pursuit in the civilian world, it's, it's fairly easy to you know, rise to the top of the talent pool in, in whatever organization you're in. And that's not just specific to being an infantry officer like I talked about. I've had this conversation with Nukes. I've had it with Swoes. I've had it with you know, people that have worked in a lot of different areas. And ultimately, the, the military gave us this invaluable skill set and these invaluable tools and, and mission planning processes that the civilian world desperately needs and can benefit from. So if you find a way to, to apply those in a, in a and, and this isn't just leaning on your service and saying, Hey, I'm a veteran. So like I'm qualified to do this, but it's getting into an organization, learning, building rapport, and then thinking back to your military service and figuring out where those parallels are and where you can have the most impact. That is awesome. Well, Tyler, I, I appreciate your perspective. I'm, I'm hoping this is not the last time that you are on the show. I think that you've got so much wealth. I know that for listeners, we, we talked a little bit more on the sales side, but there's equal knowledge there on the energy sector side. And um, yeah, I really appreciate your, your time today. Thank you, Justin. I really appreciate you having me. Beyond the Uniform is written and produced by me, Justin Asiri, with the help from our Chief of Staff, Steve Bain, our Editor, Lex Brown, and our Head of Social Media, Janelle Hanf. We are an all-volunteer organization and would greatly appreciate your help in any of the following ways. First of all, spread the word. Beyond the Uniform has over 380 podcast episodes and 15 on-demand webinars, all offered for free. Help us spread the word on social media, at military bases, or whatever gets this resource in front of the men and women who need it. Positive reviews on iTunes go a long way towards this as well. Second of all, sponsorship. Beyond the Uniform relies on sponsorship to keep us going. There is so much more we'd like to do, but just don't have nearly the resources to do it. If you know of a company that would advertise in any way with Beyond the Uniform, please send them our way. Third of all, donations. If you're in a financial position to donate, you can find more information on the support section of our website. At our website, beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find over 380 episodes categorized by industry, functional role, and more. You'll also find both free and for-purchase resources that take a deeper dive on topics related to career growth. Thank you for your support as we aim to help members of the military and their families thrive in their post-military career in life.